Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also the host of the Popular Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I want to explore the opportunities to transform American healthcare and the skills leaders will need to apply to accomplish this. Robbie, I've heard the metaphor of the Iron Triangle applied to medicine. What does that represent? Jeremy, the Iron Triangle was coined by Dr. William Kissick, a healthcare policy expert who in the latter part of the 20th century pointed out that no healthcare system could simultaneously provide excellent quality, convenient access, and low cost. Like a triangle, two of the points can come very close together, but then the third would be far away. And much of the healthcare debate in the last century began with this assumption, and the discussion focused on which of the three would be best left out and ignored. Although true in the past, this rigid view of what is possible, it's no longer the case. Advances in medical knowledge about opportunities to prevent diseases, to avoid complications from medical errors, and to use modern technology for the benefit of patients, they offer the potential to achieve all three simultaneously. If that's the case, what's missing? Jeremy, the short answer is effective leadership. As we've talked about in a previous Dive and Deep episode, our nation, with few exceptions, is devoid of leaders committed to and capable of making strategic transformation. It's just easier, with a higher probability of success, to embrace a middleman mentality and search for a solution to a specific, narrow need, rather than addressing the totality of the underlying foundational problems. In the last Diving Deep episode, you talked about the importance of the brain, heart, and spine for effective leadership. Can you refresh the listener's memory? Sure, happy to do so. Healthcare leaders need to apply logic and imagination. That requires using their brains. Passion and empathy coming from their hearts. And courage and persistence, which are traits to the spine. As difficult as this may be, without all three, progress, it just doesn't happen. When done authentically, the combination can create a powerful vision for the future, the motivation to move forward, and the support needed to reach the finish line. Any leader wanting to break the iron triangle and transform healthcare for the benefit of patients and clinicians alike will need to follow this approach. What you're describing sounds like a daunting task. How might a leader begin? Jeremy, let's assume the individual is the leader of a medical group or health system, and is focused on providing excellent quality, convenient and easy access and lower costs to the patients that the group or health system serves. The anatomical structure to begin with is the brain. The reason for this choice is that clinicians are smart 
and value logic and reason. If I were facing an audience convinced this quest is impossible, I might begin with a thought experiment. Jeremy, thought experiments are valuable for helping people see beyond what currently exists. What they do is narrow the size of the gap by eliminating one or two barriers. In this one, I'd ask the clinicians to imagine a healthcare world in which time and money were irrelevant. Of course, they'd probably laugh at the thought, but that's the power of a thought experiment. And in this hypothetical world, since time and money were irrelevant, doctors wanted to improve people's health, would see patients every day with visits lasting as long as needed. The doctors in the room would see this approach as powerful and likely to greatly improve quality outcomes. Now, once they recognized that value, then I'd ask the group to explain why would it have such a positive impact? What do you think they'd say? I'd predict some physicians would talk about being able to address the gaps in people's care that often get overlooked during the typical 15-minute visit. I think they'd go on to explain how doing so would allow clinicians to focus on opportunities to prevent a range of medical problems and avoid complications from chronic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and elevated blood lipids that result in heart attacks, strokes, and cancer and account for 90% of healthcare's total costs and mortality. Other doctors in the room might explain how more frequent visits would allow them to adjust medications and modify treatments in real time and lead to control of chronic illnesses more rapidly and more consistently. And some clinicians with an interest in lifestyle medicine might talk about the huge opportunities to improve people's health through better diet, exercise, smoking cessation, addiction recovery, and stress reduction. I can see how doctors and patients alike would love a world of healthcare in which time and money weren't factors. But how would you transition from that thought experiment to the realities of the day-to-day -day life? What the thought experiment does is shift the question from how can you do these things, which clearly is impossible given the constraints of time and money, to how might they be accomplished without taking much of your time or being inconvenient or expensive for patients. The reasons we can break the iron triangle now, but couldn't do so in the past, are a combination of advances in medical knowledge and the availability of 21st century technology. Technology now offers a potential solution. Think about the technology that exists today that wasn't available in the last century. We have near ubiquitous smartphones, deep data analytics, reliable and low-cost streaming video, reliable digital monitoring, advanced artificial intelligence. These technologies offer the possibility of rapidly transforming American healthcare. What are some of the ways these tools and applications might be successfully used? The first set of opportunities, Jeremy, would be through shifting healthcare from its current episodic nature. A doctor sees you, and then tells you to return in three, four, six months, and making the care far more continuous. An Alexa-like application in the patient's home could provide round-the-clock monitoring of people's blood pressure, pulse, blood oxygen, and breathing with continuous evaluation of whether a person was doing well or failing to achieve 
the clinical outcomes that the individual's doctor expected. Second, a voice-enabled app could prompt patients when the time had come to take a particular pill, confirm they had done so, and order drug refills for home delivery when needed. Failure to take medications as prescribed is a frequent reason that patients experience a complication from chronic disease or need to be readmitted to a hospital following discharge. Third, in our hectic lives, unless a medical issue becomes problematic, we often put addressing it off again and again. In the same way that we use Alexa or Siri to get daily updates on the weather or the financial markets, this AI-driven application could update us on our health, remind us when we needed preventive health screenings, schedule the tests and the services that we require, and even arrange transportation if needed. How about a couple more opportunities? Jeremy, for patients with diabetes, hypertension, or even heart failure, this type of healthcare virtual coach could connect their home monitoring devices, including their glucometer, blood pressure cuff, or electronic scale to the medical groups or health systems electronic health record. And using an AI app, the device could compare each day's numbers against the expected range that had been preset by their doctor, alerting both patients and physicians when something was awry. Finally, this type of technology could be extremely effective when it comes to lifestyle improvement. It could help people find and partake in flexibility and strength developing programs, help them monitor and adhere to a healthier diet, and offer a range of relaxation and meditation exercises. These approaches to improve health and wellness, they're not new. Portions of each have been promoted by various entrepreneurial companies, but no one has yet brought all the pieces together and coordinated them with the totality of people's medical care. I can see how this would make logical sense to clinicians. They're aware of the gaps that currently exist and don't have the time to address all of them while caring for the urgent and acute problems patients have. What is the next step in this process, Robbie? Jeremy, once clinicians recognize the breadth of opportunities that exist to use technology to augment the care that doctors provide, they're likely to nod in agreement that it's a good idea, but I think they'll be hesitant to embrace it. And that's where the heart must intervene. As you know, my surgical focus has been on children with cleft lip and cleft palate. Every American knows that there are children born with this problem in other countries who never have a chance to have their appearance and speech corrected. But getting people to understand the gap and donating the money needed to close it, that's two different things. And that's why organizations that organize volunteer programs don't write about them, but instead they show a picture of a single child awaiting surgery. That visual drives contributions massively, far more than any statistical analysis of the problem. Applying that idea to getting doctors to embrace the potential of technology, rather than quoting numbers on the positive impact it could have relative to national healthcare expenditures, or even what it might do to the average life expectancy. No, I'd invite a friend of mine to tell the group about his father. I'll call him Dan. And every primary care doctor has dozens of patients just like him. Dan is in his early 70s, 
nearing retirement. He lives alone. His wife passed away a few years ago. And Dan hasn't been the same since that time. His three kids, they're all grown up and they've left the nest. They live several states away. They constantly worry about their father's physical and mental health. Dan has diabetes, high blood pressure, and elevated blood lipids. He takes seven different medications, but he has a hard time remembering when to take which. After his heart attack last year, Dan's physical therapist told him it was important to take daily walks, but it's been a difficult habit to maintain. So on most days, Dan skips out on exercise. He's struggling with his chronic illnesses, and he feels increasingly isolated and lonely. It's clear he's struggling and easy to see why his health would decline. What would you do next? Before I discuss in greater detail the role that technology could play, I would focus on the impact of Dan's failing health on his children. I'd ask my friend to talk about his father and his sister and how they feel about their dad's medical issues. My friend would most likely describe the times his dad ended up in the emergency room because he forgot to take his medications or couldn't get in to see a doctor. He'd express the frustration he and his sister felt knowing his visits could have been avoided. He would detail the last two hospital admissions that Dan required so that the physicians in the room could understand how easily both of them could have been avoided with more effective continuous disease management. When people can't relate to a problem, don't believe they can do much about it, or don't have the time or energy to do so, they tend to dismiss it and tend to ignore it. But for many individuals in the room, I'm confident the brain and the heart would connect, seeing a massive problem for their patients and the possibility for their own families that a technological solution could make a huge difference in the lives of both parents, children, and the people who provide the care to them. The role the brain and heart play makes sense, but what about the spine? Jeremy, when ideas are logical and will benefit people, you might assume that implementation would be easy and rapid, but rarely is this the case. The reason is that every solution has downsides and has implications for the people who must implement it. As an example, the monitoring systems and AI applications that we just discussed They'll detect more problems, and they'll communicate to patients when the risks are great. For the entire approach to work, at these moments, when the machine has informed them that they could have a major problem, they can expect a rapid response from the clinician, whether a phone call or an office visit. And that isn't always convenient for the doctor, but it's essential to maintain the confidence and trust of the patient. So before implementing the technology, I'd ask all the physicians to get together and agree on an expected turnaround time for a response, whether it be a phone call, text message, or office visit. Of course, on occasion, doctors will need to deviate from this commitment because there's another patient they're taken care of who is, has an emergency, and it's simply impossible to be in two places at once. But more often, when this response doesn't happen at a timely fashion. It's because the physician really wasn't committed to providing this level of patient convenience. And when that happens and it's ignored, patient trust is eroded. And doctors conclude 
that commitment isn't important. And for that medical group or that hospital system, the Iron Triangle stands firm. And this is when the spine is so important. It's not comfortable to confront these individuals. Often their response is anger, but doing so is the responsibility of leadership. The attraction of a middleman approach to problems is that leaders never have to play this role. Instead, they just patch over the problem and hide it. But intervening on behalf of all physicians and patients proves powerful and is essential if leaders want to transform American medicine and break the traditional iron triangle. Can you give an example? Jeremy, when I became CEO in Kaiser Permanente, which is the nation's largest integrated health system, our quality was good, but not outstanding. Our medical group decided that our strategy would depend on becoming the nation's leader in chronic disease prevention and management. Using our comprehensive electronic health record and applying data analytics, we could make the information on care gaps visible at every medical visit to every physician caring for a patient. Physicians from every specialty agreed to consistently address these care gaps, even when doing so wasn't directly tied to the reason the patient had come. As you might imagine, some of the specialists didn't feel it was their job to worry about opportunities to prevent diseases or minimize their complications. But we knew that the difference between being good and nation leading was never letting an opportunity pass. Whenever physicians consistently ignored these types of medical problems, the departmental leaders would intervene and explain why doing so was so important, both for patients and for the medical group overall. By seizing these opportunities for disease prevention and better management of chronic diseases, we became number one on the National Committee for Quality, the NCQA ranking. As a result, the chances of our patients experiencing a diet from a heart attack, stroke, or various cancers fell by 30% or more compared to the rest of the country. And as a side benefit, through disease management and better prevention, our cost of coverage dropped 15% below the competition, and our market share soared from 34% to 46%. What other problems would a leader experience in working to implement this type of technological solution as a first step to transforming healthcare delivery? In addition to doctors worrying about the impact of this approach on their time, they'd be concerned about the consequences for their income. When virtual care is being provided in the patient's home in this fashion, Doctors wouldn't bill or be paid. And if over time it reduced the need for in-office medical care, the financial hit could be significant. Overcoming that fear requires shifting how healthcare is paid in the United States. Can you expand on the economic impact of the current system? Jeremy, when I look at healthcare in the United States, I conclude that patients aren't getting what they pay for. Not even close. As a nation, we spend more than $12,500 each year per American. And despite spending almost twice as much as other countries, the U.S. has the worst rates of childhood mortality, paternal mortality, and chronic disease among the 11 of the wealthiest nations in the world. 
American life expectancy has barely budged in the past 20 years, lagging not only wealthy peer countries, but poorer nations too, including Poland, Lebanon, and Cuba. What do you see as the underlying problems? Jeremy, there are many contributors, including socioeconomic factors, I mean, not monopolistic pricing by hospitals and by drug companies, but a huge one is our country's current payment methodology, which is called FIFA service. The name says it all. The more you do, the more you're paid, regardless of whether it adds value or not. A physician who performs a back surgery earns a fee, let's say $5,000. A physician who performs two back surgeries makes twice as much, even if there's little possibility that the second one will make a positive difference for a patient. What's the consequences of being paid fee-for-service? These pay-for-volume incentives distort clinical priorities and they compromise patient care. They reward quantity with far greater gusto than quality. In fact, if an operation has a complication, the surgeon may earn more by correcting the mistake than doing the procedure in the first place. And fee-for-service leads to overvaluing intervention with its risks and undervaluing prevention and patient safety. Let me give you an example of the distorted incentives. Imagine that a surgeon examines a patient with back pain. Numerous clinical studies have demonstrated that treating this problem with physical therapy often proves just as successful as operative intervention. And of course, with fewer complications. But for the surgeon, there's a tenfold difference in pay between referring the patient to physical therapy and doing the operative procedure. Whereas surgery would debt the doctor $5,000 in the example we just gave, the non-invasive approach might earn $500. Behavioral economics demonstrates that this level of pay differential distorts perceptions and leads to actions that deviate from objective scientific data. Doctors are likely to remember the one patient who had an excellent result from the surgery and forget the others who after six weeks of physical therapy were back to full activity and return to the opportunities that technology provides rather than demanding technology that can make medical care more continuous and more rapid. Alexa, help me manage my health. They continue to bring patients to their offices and provide medical care at a much slower, episodic pace. I'll see you in four months. It's clear the problems with fee-for-service, but what's the alternative? Jeremy, an alternative reimbursement methodology is called capitation. It pays a group of doctors, either a single specialty like primary care or a multi-specialty medical group, a set upfront fee to fulfill all the medical needs for a defined population of patients. The size of that payment is based on the number of people for whom the physicians will be accountable, the age of the patients, obviously a 90-year-old is more likely to require medical care than a 60-year-old, and their overall medical risk based on the diseases they already have. You can think of it similar to an all-inclusive resort where everything you need for your vacation, hotel, food, activities, entertainment, is included for a single price that's paid in advance. How does this method of payment change the incentives for physicians, Robbie? 
Jeremy, contrary to fee-for-service, doctors who are prepaid on a capitated basis do best when they help patients stay healthy, when they avoid and better manage medical problems. And by flipping the financial incentives from volume to value, capitation becomes a furnace for innovation. Suddenly, physicians can see how important it would be to have an Alexa-like device in patients' homes, providing regular updates on their health, reminding them to take their medications, and assisting with important lifestyle changes, be it diet, exercise, stress relief, or smoking cessation. It drives them to focus on the gaps in prevention and chronic disease management as aggressively as they do treating acute problems. And because most medical problems become worse and more expensive over time, it provides an incentive for doctors to see patients quickly and solve the patient's issues the first time and as rapidly as possible. I've heard anecdotal stories of patients in capitated programs having care delayed and denied how does this match your enthusiasm for the approach, Robbie? You're right, Jeremy. Capitation and a variety of payment models that have been labeled pay for value have failed in the past. And the reasons vary. Most often, the issue is that an insurance company is capitated, not the doctors or hospitals that deliver the care. In these models, providers are paid fee for service. And as you might expect, Incentives drive up utilization and cost. And in response to higher utilization, higher cost, the insurers mandate even more stringent and restrictive prior authorization requirements. In addition, people confuse a multitude of pay for performance approaches that have been tried, including ones today that are used by the federal government in Medicare, that give doctors an extra couple of dollars each time they do a preventive screening test, or a chronic disease intervention. But it ignores the opportunities that aren't being given financial incentives that year. Now, when I use the word capitation, I mean capitation at the delivery system level, where it's the physicians or the physicians in the hospitals that receive the capitated payment directly and control the care that's provided to the particular population of patients. And when this happens, clinicians, not insurers, figure out the best way to provide care. And they're rewarded as much for avoiding a medical problem and preventing a complication as for treating either. This sounds positive for both patients and physicians. Are doctors jumping at the chance? Unfortunately, Jeremy, the answer is no. And the reasons are multifactorial. First, assembling a group of doctors Willing to work together as one and share accountability, that's difficult. In the medical culture, this type of group effort is looked down upon compared to the heroics of the individual physician. And moreover, capitation requires doctors to take on greater financial risk. And physicians tend to be risk averse. And unless the group is very large, it needs to purchase reinsurance protection in case of a pandemic or an unanticipated acceleration of medical costs that could lead to bankruptcy. And that can be expensive for the members of the group. Behavioral economics has shown that the fear of loss is far stronger than an equivalent opportunity for gain. 
And a final issue said not everyone wins equally in a capitated model compared to a fee-for-service methodology. Since capitation rewards prevention and chronic disease management, primary care physicians benefit proportionally more than, let's say, spine surgeons. And yet leaders, medical groups, hospital systems must attract skilled clinicians who can minimize surgical errors and reduce postoperative complications for the entire capitated program to be successful. Putting all these pieces together, the move to capitation, it's just more complex than fee-for-service, and the financial benefits are less guaranteed. But what I want to stress for listeners, success is possible with effective leadership. Robbie, I assume that the leaders wanting to shift the payment methodology will once again need to use their brains, hearts, and minds differently than today to earn the commitment of the doctors in the medical group or health system. Yes, Jeremy, they most likely will once again lead with the brain. Doctors pride themselves on their intellectual abilities, and they need to understand their problem and its solutions before moving forward. Whether we're talking about expanded use of technology in healthcare or shift in the methodology by which physicians are paid, leaders need to apply logic, reasoning, and facts to the problem before they can persuade their colleagues to go forward and make the changes needed. The arguments can't be theoretical. They have to be specific to the individuals in the group. Primary care physicians, they'll be attracted to capitation since it rewards the time that they spend in keeping patients healthy, focusing on prevention, and helping patients avoid problems with their chronic diseases. The lack of recognition for these tasks and the time that it takes to do them right now is very frustrating to primary care doctors. And they will more quickly see the benefits of moving from fee-for-service to capitations. Specialists will be more skeptical. They will see that the current approach in which they are placed high in the hierarchy is threatened. But at least subconsciously, specialists know that often the procedures they do it adds little value to patients. Being able to focus on those patients who are most likely to benefit from surgery or benefit from a medical procedure aligns with the mission of medicine. It aligns with why they became doctors in the first place and done well, it highlights their expertise. And ultimately, the large save costs can generate sufficient dollars to reward both cognitive and procedural physicians. In a capitated system, outcomes can be win-win. But once the modeler's advantages are clear, leaders must avoid the trap of lingering on the details. Clinicians will only take the leap to capitation if it resonates in their hearts. I understand the power that emotions play in driving or inhibiting change, but how does this relate to capitation? Jeremy, for doctors, there is no issue more emotionally charged today than that of burnout. A recent Mayo Clinic survey found that nearly 70% of physicians report feelings of hopelessness, fatigue, and professional dissatisfaction. What's causing this burnout? According to doctors, it's number one, seeing too many patients each day, which is really a question of not getting paid enough per encounter. 
two, prior authorization requirements, and three, the clunky computer systems that slow them down. If I was speaking to the doctors in the room, I would not need to remind them of the pain they feel. Among clinicians, burnout is universally understood. Instead, I would try to paint a realistic picture of capitation and help explain how it can diminish the pain that the individuals, the physicians in the room currently feel. How might a leader do that? One approach would be to ask them how they would feel if they were to earn as much income as before while having more time with each patient. This is a reality that's possible in a capitated system that rewards the prevention of disease and the avoidance of complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. Then the leader might ask, imagine what their workday would be like having already received the payment through the capitated system to no longer have to request prior authorization from an insurance company to provide the medical care that they know is needed. And then ask them to think about never having to submit claims or use the electronic health record to code for billing. This obviously would reduce office overhead, but it also would allow clinicians to trade in their clunky computer systems for more agile, clinically oriented technologies. And finally, the leader might have them imagine how their patients would do, prospering for better health with lower out-of-pocket costs and being able to spend the dollars saved on their families. The best way for leaders to connect with the doctor's heart is by helping physicians experience the sense of purpose and the greater professional satisfaction that they would feel when they trade their current burnout for capitation. What role do you see the spine playing when it comes to capitation? Jeremy, in fee-for-service, everyone does what's in their own best interest. But in a capitated model, nothing works without collaboration and cooperation. And because the autonomy of the individual physician is elevated above collaboration in the culture of medicine. The move to capitation requires that the leader maintain a strong spine. In most organizations, there are those individuals who feel that they're special and they act as such. They view themselves as superstars, not just team players. This toxic attitude undermines performance. A leader with a strong spine has to stand up to self-serving individuals in order to ma maximize group excellence and maintain group coherence. It's easy to see how the expanded use of technology and shifting the payment model to capitation line. What else is needed to move away from fee-for-service as the method of reimbursement? As you indicate, Jeremy, capitation aligns incentives for doctors and patients and both benefit when people are kept healthier and higher quality medical care is provided more rapidly. But all too often, doctors have been told in the past, work smarter, not harder, when insurance and payers really meant work more for less. For this reason, before taking the leap to capitation and enjoying the fruits of technological change in medicine, 
there's one more step that leaders must take. They have to help clinicians understand the day-to-day operational changes that will be needed to simultaneously lower costs and improve clinical outcomes. As with technology and capitation, leaders will once again need to use their brain, heart, and spine in ways that convince physicians to maximize the work they do together. And as you might imagine, this is a complex topic. And I'd suggest, Jeremy, we focus on making medicine a team sport as the topic for our next Diving Deep podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.